0: Have you been on social media this week, by the way? A bit. Not Have a you lot. seen all the fuss about everything? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, oh god.
1: There never seems to be this process of um, just taking in the information. It's always got to be two way. Do, do, do you know what I mean? It, yeah. The, 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 people don't seem to
0: just absorb the information and think. What does it okay, mean? Okay, I'll, I'll look into that. I'll look forward to that. Or yeah. And there's no context. Nobody ever contextualises anything. There was a quote from um, Piers Wenger about... um, This is the one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did see that. It's just like the last three days. I mean, it's bad enough most of the time, but the last three days have just been insane. So there's a quote from Piers Wenger Mm. on a clickbait website. And they've taken the quote slightly out of context. And basically, he's just doing the usual thing. I mean, he's the head of BBC Drama, so mm. effectively he's you know the man in most control of Doctor Who, I suppose. I don't think he actually really has anything to do with it, but I guess he's got certain power of yes and no at the top. He just says this thing about, oh, Jodie Whittaker, she's... Uh, something like, you can't tell where she stops and the Doctor begins. In other words, she's bringing her own personality to it. Yeah, and as part of the quote, he just says something a bit nondescript about oh, the idiosyncrasies of the last few doctors the, will daf- be gone. Daffiness and idiosyncrasies. Was it daffiness and yeah. idiosyncrasies? Yeah, and that's you know not. It doesn't really mean anything.
1: No, no, it's not. It I doesn't. Th- I think people have taken the viewpoint that it's some kind of slight on the previous doctors. The, the
0: automatic response is oh it must be a slide, therefore I need to be irate about it. Mm. And people just get instantly annoyed. Another one was the um, Blu-ray box set of season 12. Oh, yeah. Which was up for pre-order for about three months, right? Yeah. So anybody who wanted a copy, you know, could have pre-ordered it.
1: Anyone with money, yes, yes.
0: Well, yeah. Yes. I, I know what you said Yeah, if somebody wanted I don't enough, have money. No. But I had three months window, so I made sure that yeah. by the time it came out, I yeah. had enough money there to cover it. Yeah. But I I can't afford most of the things that I want to buy. No. But, uh, so, well, I don't know whether this will go on, but if it does. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have money. Mm. But I made sure... I had enough money yeah. put aside for it. You yeah, had three months to make sure you could put enough money aside I mean, for it, and it was thirty-five quid in the end if you knew where to buy oh, it. Oh, was it? Like yeah, then? yeah. So it's not like it was seventy quid or something.
1: No. Oh no, no, it was affordable.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And it's but but isn't it going to be available anyway? It's only the packaging which is limited edition anyway, isn't it? This is going to come out obviously well, the in a corrected
0: form. Well, that's the idea that. There's going to be a standard one afterwards, but apparently the BBC haven't decided yet whether they're going to put out a standard one or not. Okay. I suspect they will now, given how quickly it's sold out. Mm. Here's the thing. The BBC have released limited editions of things on DVD before. Mm. Like, for example, the Key to Time mm. box set. When they brought that out in the UK, that was a limited edition. Mm. And, it, and in the end, they re-released that in different packaging as well. So yeah, you can still yeah. get that. Yeah, I got it the second time. Yeah, so the original edition was limited, but there was like a two, three-month pre-order window, Mm. and then even after it came available for sale, it was still on sale in the limited edition for several months afterwards. Mm. So when it came to this, they probably couldn't have guessed the amount that they were due to make was going to sell out so quickly. Mm. So it wasn't a deliberate ploy to annoy people by releasing something that was going to be gone like that, mm, mm. it was. But the point of it is, this is SD material that's already available on SD discs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were taking a bit of a risk by releasing it on yeah, HD. Yeah. Nobody knew.
1: This was the thing. I mean, I had that. I had to weigh the whole thing up. I say about money and also the fact, you know, <clears throat> I haven't actually got all of the DVDs. But ironically, yeah. that's the one series where I had all of the stories bar one. Having said that, two days ago, I managed to get the one story I didn't have. Oh, so, right. I mean, there's another way of looking at it, which is anyone who's looking to kind of build up their DVD collection, is that they, they're probably going to get the chance now, because there's going to be an awful lot of second-hand ones coming up, <laughs> yeah, flooding in.
0: Yeah. So,
1: um, but, but everyone has a choice. That's the thing, don't they? Everyone has a choice. You don't have to buy it. It's available, as you say, in
0: other standard formats. There it's are, not like the toys thing because mm. with the toys, B&M... I mean, yeah, that is... They, yeah. Didn't, they don't tell you what day they're going on sale. No. And then when they do go on sale, all of a sudden it flashes around the internet. And if you're at work... I was at work. Mm. I didn't get a chance to go down to B&M until the day after. Mm. I went down to B&M the day after, and all that's left is the Eccleston sets, yeah. which is the ones I've wanted. ever seen. Yeah. 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 So I didn't get a chance to get those. And again, I, I've got a little one, who wanted those. Mm. So I put some money by to make sure I'd have some money to get them, and I wasn't able to get them. Mm. And, you know, the amount of money I put by is not going to buy them uh, on eBay.
1: And there's another way of looking at all this, which is that it's just
0: stuff. Well, it is, exactly. So yeah. when I couldn't get them, instead I bought a new printer, because my printer packed up about a month ago. Okay, yeah, nice. So that money's gone now anyway, so... Mm-hmm. So I shan't be getting those toys either way. But you know what I mean? It's like with the DVDs, the Blu-rays, you're given three months pre-order. Yeah. The season 19 one has just gone up for pre-order now. It's out in three months' time. Mm. If you want it, three months should be long enough for you to be able to say, right, if I put down two pounds a week or whatever, It's like, not. It's not like
1: concert tickets where it goes on sale at like, Nine o'clock in the morning when everyone's at work, and then the only
0: person who are able to buy it are touts. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's completely different. Mm. And the pre-order window, they will man. You know, whatever is ordered during the pre-order window, they'll manufacture enough mm. for the pre-orders plus
1: X percent extra. No, for no. the, release. I mean, this isn't this isn't a um, you know, it's not like a told you so thing. It's it's just the fact that, it, like, as you say,
0: it's a big window. Anyone who wanted to order it yeah, and was in a position to could have ordered it. <clears throat> and I don't think there's been that many people moaning about it because most of the people, I think, did get it. Mm. You know, most of the people who were that bothered about it.
1: I'm more interested in whether there is actually a, <laughs> a Photoshop um, issue on the Season 19 image they put out. Oh, no, if you look at it carefully, it's perfectly ordinary. It's on the shirt, though. Somebody pointed it out, and and I, th- I was looking at it. And it does. Oh, you were it. Looking, you're not talking about the hand. No, no. Oh, the hand. Oh, the big yeah. one I saw. Was it, about is a, the hand. it is an odd. Yeah, no, I was looking at that,
0: and it's just an odd position. he has got his, um forefinger pointing outwards. Which yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's foreshortened, odd.
1: Isn't it? It's foreshortened. Yeah. So you because because see the pointing at the camera. So yeah. it looks weird. Yeah,
0: but no, it's okay. What's going on with the shirt? It's
1: on, on his shirt on his collar. There's a a bit of red coming across because you know there's like a red tip on the top of each of yeah yeah each of the collar pieces. And the red bit comes out, and there's no white underneath it. And if you look carefully, you can see some smearing. So it's almost like somebody's done it in Photoshop. Yeah, it's yeah. possibly they've used two different photos from yeah, different yeah. positions. Because I don't think it's... Somebody was saying they thought it was a painting. I don't think it is. I think it's just Photoshop. No, too, it's Photoshop, it? like the last one. Yeah. yeah, so they've used two different positions, two different... Yeah. A collar from a different photo. And they've, what they've probably done is not switched on one of the layers. Could you work in layers in yeah, Photoshop? Yeah so it's it's no biggie I mean it'll be corrected because it's obviously just an image they put out to promote it yeah they've got three months to sort the thing absolutely Absolutely. but they've they sent out the corrected um, Baker Discs this week didn't they yeah and there's still mistakes
0: on it well they didn't change the credit I've got to be honest with you I am Totally and utterly not fussed about getting the corrected credit on the <laughs> Revenge of the Cybermen. What difference is that going to make to my viewing no. pleasure? No, I know none whatsoever. <laughs> so I've got no intention of, uh, and at the moment, to be honest. The other one's a surround sound thing as well. I think. Yeah, yeah, something like yeah. That. It's quite,
1: it's quite a drastic one, actually. That one is it? Yeah, is it on Santaran experiment?
0: It is. Yeah,
1: and I think. It was described to me that where, obviously, it'd be usually be six-channel sound, and all the sound ends up coming out of the centre speaker and nothing else. So it does okay.
0: completely ruin the Well, the stereo anyway. No. So it's not going to affect me anyway. Yeah, I never get corrected, discs. <laughs> 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 Any time I've ever done it, I think, it was Invisible Enemy, where they accidentally messed up the cliffhanger on one of their things. Oh,
1: isn't it? One of the audios on one of the episodes is completely the wrong soundtrack, isn't it? I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Oh, no, I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah, one was a technical fault to do with the surround sound, and the other one, I thought, was that they got the wrong... Oh, on what? On one of the old DVDs? Yeah, but again, it might be a surround sound issue. It might
0: be on the DTS track or whatever it is. Oh, I can't say I've come across that, I don't think. Yeah, it's probably on the surround sound. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I should, say, I should say, you're listening to the Blue Box podcast, and for the next <laughs> 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who or other things, so you don't have to. I'm Simon, and so where were we? <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't know. I mean, it, it's no. I think. Do you know what? If if, oh dear, it's this whole this whole editing thing of before people type. I don't know. I don't know.
0: I haven't yeah. even read the other big one this week was Talons of Wang Chang and Doctor Who magazine, right? Mm. I haven't even read the. Um, the uh, I've read the piece, the Time Team piece. Mm. I've not read the editorial yet because a lot of the fuss was about the editorial. Mm. So the time team piece is a lot less unreasonable than a lot of people have made out. And the editorial, I thought, no, I'll read that another time because if I read the editorial, I'm going to start getting involved in these arguments. And I thought one way to guarantee that won't happen is if I don't read it. I'm glad you're getting good at
1: that. (laughs) I started doing that a while back. I don't. I, I just came to the conclusion that you can't make your own judgment on things if you don't kind of get involved with them. I mean, yeah, you can have a discussion afterwards, and it's interesting to hear how people come at these things. But when you get embroiled in these things, these, these things that snowball, I, I can't see how you can enjoy it yeah. in a manner that is kind of pure. So you have a pure... Because before you started recording, we were talking about the fact that you were saying about some of the reviews for films that are appearing on certain websites are far newer, so they're away from the original release, and you were saying about films like Peter Still Rabbit. So where... the
0: context.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and kind of, you know, I, I, when these things snowball and there's so many opinions flying around, I can't see how you can... It takes real skill to watch something and, and make your own mind up on something, when you've got all this <laughs> stuff flying around in your head yeah, that other yeah. people are saying, and, and
0: half the time they getting things wrong anyway, so... Well, the thing about the time team is, most of the complaints were from, like, older generations saying, oh, they're being so PC. Mm. Which seems to indicate that these people in the time team are thinking, oh, I ought to be PC because I'm in the time team and I'm in the magazine. But no, the context is, Mm. these people are, like, 20, 30 years younger. Mm. They're not being PC. They... Are PC, are PC? because they're younger, yeah, and you know they've grown up in a in, in, in a different yeah, environment. Just like we're
1: very, well, yeah, just like we're very critical of our parents. You know, it was the whole point, isn't it, of being children? As you criticize the generation again before you do, yeah, and, and it's part of evolution, isn't it? You try and correct what the others mm. have got wrong, and you, you make all new mistakes instead. Mm. But
0: yeah, I mean, they did, and you've got to then level the same mistake at the time time team is that they made the same mistake that the older people are making about them. They're missing the context. They're mm. missing the context of talents of Wang Chiang. Mm. And when I say they're missing the context, they're not missing the fact that it was made nigh on 50 years ago or whatever it is. In fact, it is 50 years ago. No, no, mm. 40 years ago, sorry. Mm. 41 years ago. No, they, they. one of the criticisms they made was if the, the racism being based on something old and being of its time might have been made more palatable if the Doctor had made a commentary on it to let the viewer know that it wasn't okay or whatever. Mm. And then they kind of miss the context of uh, Chang because they even bring up the fact that Chang says to the Doctor, don't all us yellow people, whatever, look the same don't we all look the same, whatever it is he says, I can't mm. remember the exact mm. line of dialogue. Mm. Which So Chang, inside the story, is making a commentary on the racism in the story. Mm. In other words, he's saying, I'm the guy who's supposed to be the victim of this racism, and I'm understanding the racism, and I'm turning it back on the perpetrators of the racism. Mm. So actually, there is a commentary within the story about awareness? the racism. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing is, The Doctor, he doesn't at any point in the story say, oh, racism is wrong or whatever. But at several points in the first couple of episodes, he makes ironic comments about it, which in itself is a form of commentary on the racism in the story. Mm. So when, and I, you know, Tom Baker at this point was starting to write bits of lines of dialogue for himself in these stories. The bit where he says to Leela, I was attacked by that little fella and those four little fellas over there or whatever. And these Chinese guys are actually not little at all. But I suspect, actually, that might have been a line that Tom Baker added. Mm. And I think the reason Tom Baker, well, even if it was Robert Holmes, the reason that line's there is not because he's being racism, racist Sorry about the five Chinese guys, but because he's pointing out the inherent stupidity of being racist. It's meant to be an ironic comment. Well, that's the way I read it anyway. Okay. I think there's a commentary inside Talons of Wen Chiang about the story's own racism in the form of irony. Mm. But I suppose 41 years on, and certainly 41 years ago, maybe people wouldn't have seen that. And mm. maybe 41 years ago they weren't supposed to see that. Maybe the people who wrote it and made it put that in There, there, was, a there kind was a kind of... There were, to kind of secrete it through, as it were. There was a
1: blind side to all that as well, wasn't there? I mean, we're talking about this as the era when the black and white minstrel show was being shown, wasn't it? Must have been. But
0: also, Love Thy Neighbour, Yeah. where the, the ones who were shown to be idiots were the white people living next door to the black people. Yeah, yeah. The black guy was the clever guy. Mm. The white guy was the idiot, right? Yeah. And the comedy came out of the white guy making a fool of himself. Mm. And this and that was 74. Four seventy-five. Yeah. So that was pre Talons of Wang Chiang. Yeah,
1: Afghan it was well before then as well. Yeah. Yeah. And again,
0: that's the older generation making fools of themselves. Mm. So all this stuff was around and in the public consciousness when Talons of Wang Chiang was made. And I think it's clear to see that there are not many, but there are certain points in Talons of Wang Chiang when the story does with a bit of irony, say this kind of behaviour is stupid Mm. and points a mirror back at the audience watching it, as it were. Mm. Mm. Should we talk about what we came to talk about? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we were going to come back and do the mini story arcs, but Mm. I said I wanted to do something else in between because I didn't want to do two story arc ones in a row, uh, podcasts in a row on that subject. So we'll come and do that. More in-depth next week. Matt's on holiday at the moment, Mm -hmm. which is a huge relief to everybody. He's not here. (laughs) Just kidding, Matt. Mm. Um, So it's just the two of us, and it might be just the two of us next week. We'll see. Uh, But there's me thinking, well, I need to get a subject together. And then Doctor Who magazine lands a few days early. And it's got the writers and directors for Series 11 in it. So I just thought we'd have a chat about the writers and directors for Series 11 and a bit about Series 11 in general. And we'll make it a short one this week. And uh, actually, since the last time we recorded, I've watched five review films. So I'll quickly go through them at the end, which will take us up to time, maybe. Mm. Okay, so you've not read this. No, no. And I've not read it in a great deal of detail. And to be honest with you, we'll do the writers first and then we'll quickly skip through the directors at the end. They... I've got the magazine in front of me now. They list five writers. And I think maybe two of them I'd heard of, and the other three probably not. Mm. Sometimes it's difficult to remember which names are floating around in the back of your head. But none of them especially have done... Well, this is going to be interesting, because none of them especially have done things that have sort of crossed my landscape, as it were. Mm. And I suspect that's probably going to be true for a lot of the people uh, listening as well. So a lot of these names will be strange to a lot of people. Mm. Because, well, one of the things that most of them have got in common is that most of the five are better known for things away from television. Yeah. Mm. And when they have done television, they've done things... Well, one of them's written about 36 episodes of Doctor's. Yeah. Doctors is one of those programs where if you do watch it, and I mean, I've seen it because I work shifts. Yeah. It's been on. So I've seen, I've seen bits of plenty of episodes of Mm. Doctors. Mm. It's one of those programs where you don't really register the name of the writer, right? No, no. You just sort of. It's kind of a testing ground, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's It's, a weekly so. It's a way in. Yeah. It's a weekly so. It's on five days a week. Mm. And as far as I can tell, it's on 52 weeks a year. So you know that is 250 episodes a year. Mm. So they eat through writers like nobody's business. There are certain
1: programmes on. There. There's Doctors, obviously. There's East EastEnders. Uh, London's Burning was another one where a lot of mm. kind of and the Bill writers, always was.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut their teeth. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, yeah, one of I think the same one actually has got credits on uh, Casualty and Holby City. Mm. the, other, the Which, but you know,
1: if you think about it, I mean that's incredibly hard to
0: yeah, write. Yes, so I was just going to say that. Yeah. You cannot do casualty or doctors or whatever unless you're good at what you do. Yeah. It's not just a testing ground, but it's a testing ground only for people who are going to prove themselves, Mm. because unless they're damn sure that you can come up with the goods, they're not going to employ you on it, really. I mean, there's obviously a team of people working on these things, Mm. but that team of people has got to come up with, like I say, 250 episodes a year or whatever. They are not going to be employing people who can't do the job. No. No. But the first name on the list—they've put them alphabetically, so we might as well do it alphabetically. Is Mallory Blackman? Mm-hmm. Well, she's a famous. Well, I was going to say she's a famous children's author, and then I was going to qualify famous, but I don't need to qualify famous. She's got an OBE. Yeah, she was the children's laureate for th- about two years. I was going
1: to say I think I recognised her titles more than I did her.
0: Yeah, well, that was the—that's the biggest name on the list. I—I mm. I would have said, um, yeah. Mostly, she's known for children's literature and theatre and um, young adult stuff as well. Mm. So, but I think she's got uh, television credits as well. But she went to the NFT, the National Film and Television School, uh, you know, to learn her trade. Mm. So, but the interesting thing there is because this is, well, more than the names. I don't think there's a lot to really discuss about the names themselves, because none of them have got a background in Doctor Who. None of them have got a background in science fiction. Mm. So, I mean, other than saying the names and giving a couple of their credits. But I think the more interesting thing is what it says about what Doctors Who's going to be yeah. for the next few years. Doctor Who? Doctor Who's. Uh, there was a uh, was slip there, wasn't it? Right, Let's. I'll tell you what then, <laughs> I'm going to go through these names really quick and okay. then we'll have a discussion about what it means afterwards. Okay. Second on the list is Ed Heim, mm. who again is uh, better known for plays and things. Um, reading down, oh, the incomplete recorded works of A Dead Body, which was a radio drama. Okay. Um, okay. Next is Pete McTigh. Oh, he's, a, he's British, but he mostly has worked in Australia. Where he created the prison drama Wentworth. Oh, okay, right, right. Which I've never seen, no. but I've I've seen it advertised or whatever. And he's so also that was a follow up to spin off of Cell Block H, was it? Um, it was a, it was I think it was an unofficial follow up to something, or maybe if it I, was I'm an, just thinking because I know the name Wentworth. Wentworth. So. Yeah, or maybe it's a, or maybe it's a sort of rebooted follow up, sort yeah. of thing, yeah. or something like that. But you're right, it was a follow up to something. Um, and he's also done, uh, well, I've got the list in front of me, but my glasses aren't that good. I'm pretty sure he's also done EastEnders mm. and Neighbours. Oh, and the Dr. Blake Mysteries, which actually shows on the BBC One just after um, Doctors in the okay. daytime. <laughs> That's quite good, actually.
1: I've got a complete black spot, actually, of what he's at. Actually on during the day on BBC these days. The Dr.
0: Blake Mysteries is like an Australian Agatha Christie style thing okay. with, is he called Craig McLachlan? who used to be? Oh really? Well, he used yeah. to play
1: Henry.
0: Henry Was in, it Henry? Yeah. Those, Obviously he's 20 years old now the he's pretty era. good. Yeah. I've never actually sat down and watched an episode, but it's been on in the living room many times when I've been coming and going. Yeah. So I've seen a bit of that. Um next name Vine I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right Vine Patel Yeah um he's uh more theatre stuff mm-hmm. although he's done one TV play it was a single play thing on the telly Murdered by my father which um won a Royal Television Society award for best yeah, single drama I remember a couple that of years coming ago. on yeah yeah and then finally Joy Wilkinson um and she's one of these people who's been listed on this is the thing it gives it's like she's listed as one of den of geeks 50 screenwriters to watch out for and various other lists like that the main thing she's known for is an adaptation of nicholas nickleby from a couple of years ago okay yeah or i say a couple of years ago i think it was about 2012 Mm. so yeah about six years ago she did an i think she did four of the five episodes so she's best known for that, mm. but again, um, theatre work, I think. But that's five names, mm. none of which have got any Doctor Who association. Mm. Isn't that exciting? Well, yeah. Uh, I suppose some people are going to look at this and say, what do these people know about Doctor Who? Well,
1: that's why Chris Chubnell's there.
0: Yeah. Because he'll tether them. Well, I, I, they well were... not tether, you know what I mean, he'll you'll make sure they're on the right track. Yeah, And they've all said, well, they've all said they like Doctor Who. You kind of have to when you're uh, being interviewed by <laughs> Doctor Who magazine for people yeah. who like Doctor Who. Yeah. But they've all cited examples of Doctor Who that they can remember. Mm. Like one of them, for instance, talks about being freaked out by Paradise Towers when he was a kid. Right. Or when she was a kid. I can't remember which one said it. I think it was one of the fellows who said it. mm So they've all cited things from Doctor Who in the past. So they're not coming to this as complete strangers, right? No, no. And Doctor Who has been so visible for the last 13 years, no writer in this country or probably anywhere in most of the, let's say, the Western world where they'll be watching Doctor Who is going to come to Doctor Who and not know what it's all about, right? Mm -hmm. And as long as you've got somebody like Chris Chibnall who's going to say, right, this is what we're writing and here are the characters... All you need to know is there's the TARDIS, right? Mm-hmm. You, the characters you don't learn who the new characters are by having an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of Doctor Who because the new characters are the new characters. So, yeah it's, yeah, it's no different to as you say, writing for Holby
1: City or or Casualty, is it? You know, you do your you do your homework, you find out about the background. As long as you know, the make format. sure things are, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: So Chris Chibnall is obviously sits them down and says, right, here's the pattern for the series or whatever. And we talked about whether it was a writer's room. And I suspect that what's going to have happened and be happening while Chris Chibnall's in in charge is that it's not going to be a writer's room Mm. in the same way as an American series would have a writer's room. On American television, you have a writer's room. They all live in Los Angeles because if you want to write for American TV, you've got to live in Los Angeles, right? Mm. So they have an actual writer's room where they'll each come in. I don't know exactly how it works, but I imagine they'll come in maybe twice a week on a Monday and a Friday for a start-the-week meeting and an end-the-week meeting. And then we'll be in and out or on the email to each other or on the Skype to each other while they're working in between. And at the start of the week, they'll get given their tasks And at the end of the week, they'll get together to see how everybody's getting on or whatever. Mm. Obviously, these people aren't all going to be living in and around Manchester or London or wherever or where Chris Chibnall lives or whatever. So these people aren't going to be doing it quite like that. And on an American series, your writers team, obviously people will come and go. But essentially, you start a series with a writers team of a dozen people. And those dozen people stay with the series through its lifespan. Lifespan. Hmm. I can imagine that what Chris Chinwell's done is Series 11 chooses five writers you know, five writers that he gets on board because I imagine you know, he whittled down a list of maybe a dozen writers or whatever and got the ones he could that wanted to do it, whatever his favourites on the list whatever way it worked out gets five writers I imagine these five writers are the five writers for Series 11 And when series 12 starts, the process will start again. Yeah. And it will be a different five writers, maybe with a couple of the same names, Mm. maybe with three or four of the same names. I can't imagine it will be just the same five. And it might be that it's an entirely different five. But I imagine the process, because he said it's somewhere in between the British way of working and the American way of working. We've got 10 episodes, right? Mm. There's five writers. And I can imagine Chris Chibnall's written the first two, the last two, and perhaps one in between. Yeah. So each of these five writers will normally be nominally be in charge of their own episode, but I can imagine Chris Chibnall has a weekly meeting on Skype or whatever mm-hmm. with everybody. But I can imagine also he says to them, right, these are the things I want you to accomplish in your episodes, and I can imagine he sent them off as a five to work partly together to keep an eye on one another's episodes yeah so Mallory Blackman for example has an episode it talks about it during this feature that each one of them has an episode but I can imagine that whoever's episode it is Mallory Blackman she'll be constantly in touch with the other four yeah over things like character over things like not repeating mm. certain scenes and you know if one of them has a, an episode that ends in a particular way, they'll make sure the other four don't, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I don't know. i have kind of re- reading between the lines. I kind of got the impression that was kind of
0: what went on with Series 1. It was what happened with Series 1, yeah, yeah. but kind of voluntarily. Yeah, because they all knew each other anyway. They all knew each other. They all lived quite close to each other as insofar as I can gather, or at least at certain points of the year, they were all in London. Mm. So they would all go off down there. Curry House, actually, wasn't it? They all went to <laughs> was the <it>? Indian. <laughs> yeah. That was where Stephen Moffat got the name of the Tula spaceship from. Oh, okay. That was the Tula restaurant. was okay. the restaurant they... So, yeah, they would get together and talk about it. Mm. But that didn't carry on after Series 1, which is a shame, mm. because it meant that Russell T. Davis was mostly... end up completely rewriting people's scripts. Mm. Whereas, I'm, I expect there was a fair bit of that in Series 1, but I expect because of the way they worked probably less of that in series one than thereafter.
1: Mm.
0: So yeah. uh, So the impression I get therefore is that, like he said, we are literally halfway in between a writer's room and just divvying up the episodes for these people and then working in isolation. Mm. And yeah, I was going to bring that up, but you did. It's almost exactly what happened probably by accident as much as anything else in series one. Mm. Yeah, because in series one, they were all excited to work on it. Yeah. yeah. Nobody knew quite what it was going to be. <laughs> and they wanted to make sure they made something consistent. Mm. And I think that situation is repeating itself this year. Mm. First woman doctor, a new showrunner who, you know, for all that there's going to be, it's Doctor Who. He's not going to change the fact that it's Doctor Who, but maybe he wants to shake up what people think of Doctor Who a little bit. mm so it's kind of ground zero again a little bit.
1: Mm,
0: mm. I mean, when Stephen Moffat took over, I don't know if people are really aware of this, but I mean, it's been talked about often enough. When Stephen Moffat took over, there had been talk within the BBC of knocking it on the head after Russell T Davis left. Mm. And before that conversation had ever really got any ground, Russell T Davis said, why would you want to do that? Because you've got the perfect guy to take over, Stephen Moffat. So before it had got anywhere close to actually being cancelled, they'd already spoken to Stephen Moffat and organised for Moffat to take over. But it's quite well known now that when Stephen Moffat took over, they reduced his budgets. Mm -hmm. So Series 5 had a much reduced budget. And the first three years with Stephen Moffat, there was quite a turnover of executive producers, Mm. which I imagine, and there was always a lot of talk, oh, Stephen Moffat can't choose his executive producers. Stephen Moffat doesn't choose the executive producers. They get put in place by the BBC. Mm. You know, Russell T. Davis didn't, insofar as I'm aware, choose Julie Graham, and he certainly didn't choose Jane Tranter. And yet Julie Graham and... They formed a great team, Mm. as it turned out. And they probably all knew each other beforehand or got to know each other really well very early in the process. I don't think Stephen Moffat quite had that luxury. But eventually things settled down because I think the BBC probably thought, well, we're giving Stephen Moffat a year to see if it works because after David Tennant and Russell T. Davis, it could all go tits up very quickly. Mm. So I think the idea was a bit like in 1970 with John Pertwee's first series with Barry Lertz. Mm. BBC kind of was saying, well, we'll give it a year, see what happens. And when it kicked off with Matt Smith, the ratings were good and stayed good. So it was good. Mm. But I mean, it could very easily have gone another way. We might mm. have made it to the 50th anniversary. Mm. But what, the reason I brought that up is because we're in completely the opposite situation now. BBC sat down with Stephen Moffat and Chris Chibnall a couple of years ago, and we heard about this. Stephen Moffat talked about it. They didn't give away all the details, and he didn't mention that Chris Chibnall was there, and put together a plan to take Doctor Who to 2020 and beyond. 2022, mm. I think, is, is pretty much guaranteed as far as 2022 now. It's not going anywhere. Mm. It's It is... As uh, insofar as I'm aware, it is about seventy five percent funded now by international money. Anyway, mm. uh, through well, what is now BBC Studios, but was originally BBC Worldwide. Mm. I mean, it's in BBC Worldwide prospectus that they pay for the lion's share of Doctor Who. It's yeah. not a yeah. it's not a secret if you look at their prospectus, <laughs> um, and it's made independently of the BBC technically by BBC Studios, which is now an autonomous organisation, which heads off any threat of Doctor Who being sold to an independent or whatever. So, you know, this was another thing I was going to bring up another time maybe, but maybe it's worth bringing it up now. Viewing figures. I was listening to something the other day, and, and I swear I heard it right. There was a broadcaster in North America who had recently revealed that more than 50% of their drama programming was accessed more than a month after the initial broadcast. Okay. That means, and this is the box set generation, that means that more than half the people who watch that don't get counted on any count of viewing figures. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, you look at Doctor Who and the viewing figures have gone down to like 5 million from 8 million. And Doctor Who's perhaps not the kind of program that as many people will box set that late because of the way it works, because it's more of an anthology thing. Mm. But certainly a lot of people just record programs on their hard drives and will watch them at some indeterminate point in the future. How many things have you got on your hard drive that you've not watched yet? Oh, loads. Dozens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. And if you record them, there's no... You know, if you download them from the iPlayer, they get deleted after a certain amount mm, of time. Yeah, But if you record them off the telly, mm. you can keep them there for years.
1: I've got, yeah, I've got stuff on there that's been on there so long that it's ended up coming on a streaming service. I've ended up reading, watching the stream, so I didn't actually watch my recordings in the end.
0: But <laughs> the point is there. Is oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. date of broadcast, it can be months before yeah. people will watch stuff. Mm. But that doesn't mean they're not watching it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're not getting counted amongst the viewers, but the viewing figures is still there. It's, so, it's very easy for people to, including myself, to, to say, oh, I must watch that. I'm just getting around to watching Breaking Bad. But obviously, the reason I'm bringing this up is because there's a lot of talk about Doctor Who's diminishing viewing figures, mm. but actually, the viewers are still there. They're just watching it later. Yeah. And it's more important that Doctor's sold widely worldwide because if... I don't know, let's say 75% of the money is coming from BBC Studios and BBC America, then the important thing is the 75% of the viewers around the globe rather than, you know, 25% in Britain or whatever. Yeah. So the British viewing figures actually don't really mean anything at all. So I mean, it's like they're building a catalogue as as opposed to... Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and then one of the other things is... One of the complaints you'll read is people don't talk about Doctor Who anymore. It's not water cooler TV anymore. Obviously, that's not true because a lot of people do talk about Doctor (laughs) Who. But probably less than, for example, that week in uh, 2008 when it looked like David Tennant was going to regenerate at the end of um, The Stolen Earth. Right, everybody was talking about that. But that was before iPlayer, before Netflix, before all these catch-up services, before as many people had recorders in their TV boxes, before smart TVs, that was about 2010, I think. Mm. I mean, a lot of these things actually existed, but didn't go mainstream until 2010, 2011, 2012. So these were the days when people would watch telly live. So the water cooler thing's partly gone because people don't watch things on broadcast anymore. Very few people... Actually, watch things on broadcast. A lot of people at the weekend won't spend Saturday night watching Saturday night TV. They'll watch, say, the X Factor or whatever, if there's a live program that is something that they're following. Yeah, but after yeah. much like a football match. Yeah, but yeah. after X Factor's finished, it'll be on to Netflix to catch up with something they recorded earlier in the week, or earlier in the month, or earlier in the year, mm. and this is what they'll do on the Friday night: Netflix or you know their sky plus box or whatever this is how people watch telly now and of course the reason i'm saying all this is because every now and again there's a program the bucks that trend And one of the programmes that bucked that trend was Broadchurch. And for all the people say, oh, the second series was rubbish and the third series didn't quite fetch it back. Broadchurch actually increased its viewership between season one and season two and then increased it again for the third series. And it was genuine water cooler TV where people. And the funny thing is, I box set all three series of Broadchurch. I didn't watch any of them go out. I recorded them all and watched them afterwards. So I didn't even I wasn't even involved in the water cooler side of it, but it was water cooler TV. So BBC studios are paying for Doctor Who, know they've got a global hit and know that as long as they keep making the product, it's gonna more than pay for itself. So all they have to do is keep making the product and keep employing people to make the product who've got the right mindset to keep it at that level internationally. Mm. Of um, awareness. So Chris Chibnall... It's no different the to choice.
1: the new J.K. Rowling movies, is it? Really? Because, I mean, Harry Potter's gone past its... Yeah. Water cooler moment, isn't it? But yeah. He, but there's an audience.
0: Yes. Sitting, waiting. Yeah, and yeah. nobody talks about Fantastic Beasts the way they did about the Harry Potters. No, no, no. But they still sell tickets. Yeah. You know, they still make a phenomenal amount of money. Mm. But, yeah... But I think the reason Chris Chibnall is brought in is to try and get some of that water cooler thing back, because the one thing about water cooler is, if people are talking about it at work the next day, then there will be people at work who think, "Oh, hang on, I might give that a try." Then, mm. so the water cooler thing will increase your audience by a degree. It's very interesting.
1: With kind of side tracking, this this is a way forward for business. I think now is that this obsession with profit has to be replaced by sustainability. And it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? These things, as long as it can be sustained, yeah, yeah, you're never going to get as... It may peak. It may peak and trough at times where we'll get... Yeah, you get peaks and troughs. The stars will be aligned, won't they? And there'll be certain people who will play the Doctor and it'll suddenly become very much,
0: but very visible. But if people are constantly harking back to that week in June of... 2008, yeah, when David Tennant looked like he was going to regenerate and say, Why can't Doctor Who always be that popular? That was the only week in history where Doctor Who hit number one in the TV charts. Mm. Oh, no, I tell a lie, it did it with the Kylie Minogue Christmas special as well, mm. Kylie Minogue effect. Mm. I think it was that one, one of them. But do you know what I mean? That's the only week in history where regular Doctor Who, as part of the series, has hit number one. It, Why should it be that popular afterwards? Because it was never that popular before. Mm, mm. You know, the Christopher Eccleston series was getting viewing figures of about 6 million. Right. Which is, you know, the Christopher Eccleston series was considered a massive success and was getting fewer viewers than, you know, all but the latest Peter Capaldi series. Mm. So, I mean, it's crazy. It's up and down, you know. Sustainability, you're right, is more important than short-term fireworks. Mm, mm. Should we have a very quick look at these directors? Because mm. these aren't gonna—they've <clears throat> only listed four. One of them, I should have made a note. I didn't. Never mind. One of them, I think, was already confirmed. Um, Sally Abrahamian, mm-hmm. who. Uh, has worked on things like The Lakes, Teachers, This Life, are all down on her CV. Um, you've got, well, I'd, again, two, uh, one of these, Jennifer Perrott, mm. I don't think I'd heard of. Um, Jamie Childs, I possibly. Know his, I know name, Sounds yeah. like a familiar name. Yeah. Yeah. And Mark Tondorai is quite a well-known name, I think. But again, they're not names that are known for Doctor Who. They're not really known for anything similar to Doctor Who. The closest thing, I think, is Sally Abrahamian had worked on Wolfblood for CBBC. Have you seen Wolfblood?
1: No, I haven't, no.
0: It's like, um, I've not seen a lot of it. I've seen bits and pieces of it. It, I mean, it's on a CBBC budget. Mm. But it's um, in that same sort of area, I guess, as Sarah Jane Adventures. It's well made. Mm. It's like a It's like a fantasy adventure series, but it's based around... Well, I'm not sure if it's based around specifically werewolves, but the sort of age-appropriate next best thing for children. But it was pretty good, and that was fantasy. So she's the only one, I think, of these directors who's even in the area of Doctor Who. But again, as you were saying before, that's exciting. Mm. Mm. Uncharted territory. Yeah, bringing people who don't do the thing mm. to do the thing, mm. means that they'll have expertise in other areas. So if they're bringing in expertise of other things into Doctor Who, because Doctor Who is like an anthology thing. It's mm. supposed to be a bit different every week, and it's supposed to be a bit different every year, mm. and it certain certainly it's supposed to be a bit different every time the Doctor regenerates. So to bring in people who've got expertise in other fields Mm. to work in your field can only expand and improve your field. Yeah, yeah. So this, I mean, you know, you sit down with the magazine and you think, right, who are these names? And you barely recognise any of them. Mm. Mallory Blackman is the the, the only one that actually stood out to me. And none of them are people whose work I've read or seen particularly and you know your instant reaction is oh but but that's just your instant reaction because then the excitement kicks in well now i'm going to now i'm going to see writers where i won't know what their themes are mm-hmm. i won't know what the common things they do are i won't know their author's voice as it were so it would be nice to get dr who where Almost entirely, the author's voices are ones that are unfamiliar to us. And when I say authors in this context, I mean the writers and the directors. Mm. It'd be nice to get a Doctor Who that's completely different. Mm. Mm. You know, while still being Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, let's not forget, um, sorry, is his name down there, the new composer?
0: I've oh, listened to a bit of his music and it is. It, Sega Naginola. Yeah, really quite I'm different I'm right. from. Yeah. But i tell you the one thing... I think I said this on the podcast before. The one thing his music reminded me of a bit was the music from the end of Doomsday. Okay, yeah. The driving, sort of uh, more rhythmic one. Yes. Because his is more rhythmic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His is more about building rhythms Mm. and um, doing... Arrangements over the top of rhythms rather than coming up with yeah. melodies and arranging around yeah. the melodies. Yeah, he
1: actually reminds me of Michael Nyman in a funny way.
0: He's more yeah, kind yeah. of grand. Yeah, Nyman is very rhythmical as well. Yeah. The Nyman, I, I don't a huge amount of Nyman, but yeah, mm. he seems to work around particular rhythms and things. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. As to what he's going to do with the theme tune as well. I mean... Well, I mean, the thing is, he learned his craft and he's done... He's done rhythmical stuff because a lot of the programs he's worked on haven't had that action stroke adventure dynamic, mm. so I can imagine he can change to i mean he oh god yeah, yeah, so I should imagine what we get will be somewhere in between, yeah, so yeah, his version of yeah, his stuff's not it's very rhythmical, but it's not necessarily electronic it's not that it's not quite as accessible as Marigold,
1: either from. What I've heard. I mean, obviously, I'm not taking for granted that what he's done on other films will be the same as what he's going to do for this. But yeah, I, I, mm,
0: we'll see. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I imagine that Doctor Who brings out a slightly more accessible side. Mm. Although the stuff that Murray Gold had done before, a lot of it was a lot more accessible than Doctor Who. Yeah, of it was quite poppy. He was, yeah. So this is, so it looks like we're actually coming from another direction. Mm, mm. Murray Gold was doing more poppy stuff and then went into a sort of more filmy, classical type yeah, of Doctor we're, Who. Mm. And then Segan aganola I hope I am saying that right, yeah. is coming in from the other side It will probably become... More dramatic. Yeah, and will probably become yeah. more accessible by doing Doctor Who. So mm. do it'll be interesting to see.
1: Mm.
0: Is there anything else we should mention then before we... Knock on a... We're... Oh, I tell you what. I will mention. Oh, oh, go on. There's something else, isn't there? Yeah, go on. Strong. The strong rumor of what you said. Sunday nights. Oh, yeah, well, this is weird because I said on the podcast about two, if not three years, when Chris Chibnall was first announced. Yeah, yeah. I said, I wonder if it'll move to Sunday nights. Yeah. I've got this horrible feeling that all these rumors that it's going to move to Sunday nights are because maybe people heard that. Um, and then forgot that they'd heard that, and then thought, oh, "I've heard it's no, moving no, to no, Sunday a, nights. A
1: date of the twenty, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You but know.
0: wouldn't it be awful if that was the case? That the the big strong rumours of it moving to Sunday night. The
1: twenty fifth of September's been mooted, isn't it? As a date,
0: the original rumours were all around October sixth, seventh, right which is my 50th birthday. Just in case anybody's listening who's got a spare B&M toy or anything. Yeah. (laughs) Sponsorship. Yeah. No, the the original rumours were very strongly around October the 6th, the weekend of October the 6th.
1: Mm.
0: And now the weekend of September 23rd's been mentioned, which is would put the Sunday on the 24th, is it? I'm not sure, I can't think. Oh, I don't know. Oh, hang on. Twenty. No, the 23rd would be the Sunday. Okay. Because I was just about to mention my operation. Mm. And so now I know what dates because of my operation, so I'll talk about that in a minute, perhaps briefly. I wonder, because when the BBC said, Doctor Who's coming back, they said in the autumn... And a couple of places prior to now have just given... Have said Doctor Who's coming back between X and Y. And they've literally just given the dates of the first day of autumn and the last day of autumn, right? Mm. And the first day of autumn is September 21st, 22nd? Saturday sure. the 22nd. Right. So I'm guessing that there's a possibility... That if somewhere is saying, Oh, Doctor Who's back on September twenty third on a Sunday, they're literally just giving the first Sunday in autumn and hedging their bets. Especially as it's turned up in at least one of the places if not a couple of other places, I where they've was just a, given the autumn days. There's a website which was particularly it was to do with guides,
1: T V guides and where they would announce when things would transmit. So dunno.
0: Yeah. I don't know how it's strong still, it is. Well it's even that is as we record, that's just over four weeks away. Mm. Well, the BBC will have known when it was going to go out for a long time. Mm. It depends whether they've started giving that information out. But the and more then, I think about it, the more it makes sense for it to be a Sunday. Because as you say, the
1: watercolour water TV, I mean, what what could be more than, you know, watching on a Sunday night going into work the next day?
0: If yeah. it's on a Sunday, it will probably be on at about half past five. Mm. Because the Sunday night lineup in the autumn is you've got a drama at nine o'clock. Mm. Before that, you've got the strictly results show. Yeah. So that would be roughly speaking half past eight. Is that a half hour show? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Can't think exactly. But let's say quarter past eight. Then before that, you've got 45 minutes of Antiques Roadshow. Right. Before that, you've got Country File. Mm. So let's say Strictly is quarter past eight, Antiques Roadshow is half past seven, Country File is half past six. Immediately prior to that, you've got a 15 minute news bulletin that puts Doctor Who at half past five, which is where it was during the mid-1970s when it was in its absolute heyday under Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Oh, okay. Well, apart from, obviously, it was Saturdays rather than Sundays, but it was about half past five. I always used to start... Oh, just before... Actually, Duke, Duke Street. Yeah, That's Street. It always used to I start... It yeah. always used to start between half past five and... Straight after... Yeah. Straight after Grandstand, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think the Grandstand... Grandstand, you had the football results till about... 10 past 5 or something. And then you'd have a news bulletin. I can still hear the ticker tape sound. Then you'd have 15, 20 minutes of news or whatever. Mm. And then you'd have something like a 5 minute cartoon or Basil Brush or something. Tom and Jerry, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, Basil Brush. Yeah. 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 And then Doctor Who would be on at something like 5.40.
1: Mm.
0: And it looks like, if any of these rumours are correct, and it is Sunday nights, and given... The lineup that's already in place, Doctor Who will start that will be in that tea time slot, half past five to quarter past six, mm. or twenty past six, fifty minute episodes, whatever. Mm. I can see that. Mm. I could see that working because that's. I don't know. I can't remember if I spoke about this on the podcast or somewhere else, but that is distraction TV. Sunday night is distraction TV. I always used to work on Saturdays in the 60s and 70s because that was the exact midpoint of the weekend where you had no worries about anything. Mm. So there was no school the next day, but you were already on a day where there was no school. So it was slap bang in the middle of the time when you didn't need a distraction, Mm. so you could give it your focus. But I think in this day and age, actually, distraction TV is nice. And I think this is why people like to sit down on a Sunday and watch a drama like Poldark mm. and watch things like Countryfile and Antiques Roadshow because they're easy and they take your mind off things. Take your mind off a, it's a
1: bloody awful Monday coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: Mm. And I'm sure that's probably the same for kids as well. Mm. I think bunging It... I mean, it's been years and years and years since BBC used to do um, Sunday Tea Time classics do you remember the sunday t zone classics where they used to do adaptations of dickens and things like that yeah yeah on sunday Ble- t bleak house was mm. sunday night wasn't it? yeah yeah so those those would be on 5 6 o'clock barry letts and Terrence sticks did a bunch of those okay yeah and um that was a great slot because that kind of programming then was the perfect thing to take your mind off whatever else you were doing. And I think sticking Doctor... We're probably talking about this and it'll turn out to be Saturdays. But sticking Doctor (laughs) Who on at half past five on a Sunday night, Mm. which gives anybody who wants to concentrate on it instead of their dinner Mm. plenty of opportunity to watch it, you know, across the rest of the evening, Miss Antiques Roadshow for it or Miss Countryfile for it or Miss Districtly Results for it, whatever... And pick and choose whichever bits of that evening's schedule they want, but I can imagine, yeah, that Sunday tea time slot, giving it a big boost, mm-hmm. if not necessarily in viewing figures. In terms of uh, people talking about it the next day, again, mm-hmm. bringing that thing back to it, which takes us back to where we, uh, where we came in. So I quickly do these film reviews? Yeah, yeah. I was going to talk about the operation. I was supposed to have it at the start of August, and obviously I said that props be a break in the podcast in August. Mm. Now, my date is September 20th. Oh, and in case anybody else, it's not a big thing. No. I'm not struggling, and this operation isn't like some big dramatic operation. Mm. It's a small thing to cure something that I would be struggling with if I didn't get it cured, right? Mm. And I suppose... Well, for the sake of saying it, it's carpal tunnel syndrome in my wrist. Yeah. It's an RSI. It wakes me up sometimes in the night, sometimes in the day. Uh, it's a little bit painful. Most of the time, you barely even notice it's there. But I've got to get rid of it before it gets any worse. Going in for an operation, but I won't be able to drive for a couple of weeks after the operation. And that's probably going to mean no podcasts. It's going to be a bit of a sod if it's just as the series is starting. Well, that's what I was going to say. Just as well, I'm mobile, then, isn't it? Well, there's nowhere. The trouble is, there's nowhere at my house to record. Yeah. So, if it is, we'll work something out. Yeah, I was going to say, if it is as the program starts, we will have to find a way around it because there's no way we can take a couple of weeks break as mm. the program mm. starts. If it's October the sixth, with a bit of luck, I'll be driving again. Yeah. So there may be a slight break just before the series. Anyway, this is a forewarning that things might go a bit pear shaped late <laughs> in September and early in October film reviews right we have actually talked for an hour so I'll be really oh quick. just very briefly. I want to see a film
1: what do I go and see uh, I've talked about Incredibles 2 haven't I I went to see <laughs> I wanted to see Christopher Robin but it was fine I couldn't so I went I took my daughter my oldest daughter to see Helter Transylvania 3 hmm hmm it's alright I really enjoyed not one of those yeah I mean yeah. I really enjoyed the 1st the, two. They're, you know, non-stop gags, aren't they? Yeah. And the visible gags, and the animation is quite
0: Jim Carrey-esque, over-exaggerated. But they're a lot of fun. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it was, and it is. And, it's, and
0: they're in our ballpark as well, really, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So, Because, I mean, a lot of the kids' animations, I saw not much. I was in and out the room. I saw a bit of Frozen today, which I've never seen. Mm. And actually... I surprised myself. I hadn't realised it was CG. Oh, okay. I, because it's fairly old now, I kind of thought it was one of the last Disney hand-animated ones. Yeah. So when I stuck it on and it turned out to be CG, I was like, of course it is. Yeah. But I hadn't even realised. <laughs> no, it. no. But that is what it is, and it's based on the hands Christian Andersen as well. I think. It is. Frozen, yeah. yeah. So It does what it does. Yeah. I mean, it's very professionally done and entertaining and more than professionally done mm. it's got a lot of character and stuff but then Hotel Transylvania it's got all that and it's in our ballpark which makes it a lot more resonant
1: story wise it's not quite so family based there's more of an adventure to it there's more of a it's a trip it's isn't more it? plotty yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so in that respect it's not quite as affecting as maybe the first ones because you haven't got the, the family kind of the side of it doesn't Come into it quite in the same way. It's the Cars two of the Hotel Transylvania series. Oh, it's not that bad.
0: I really like Cars. Yeah, 2. I know
1: you do. I know you do. I really didn't like it.
0: Really? Yes. Yeah,
1: the only Pixar movie I I really have no intention of watching again.
0: Oh, but maybe I, I should. It. Yeah. It's Cars does Bond. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought that was a great idea for a kids' film. It's a great
1: idea. I just don't.
0: I just remember it feeling... I don't know what the word is. I just thought they did it so well. I mm. thought all the characters they brought in were terrific and mm. the situations
1: they put them in. Really. I assumed the boys of a certain age would like it. Maybe that's it.
0: Maybe I was looking for the
1: heart. You see some of the one. characters are
0: girls. Mm. And I think because in the Bond movies or in certain types of movies of that ilk of that certain period, I mean... The 60s, the late 60s, and the early 70s, because mm. there were a lot of Bond knockoffs. Mm. Like, um, I say knockoffs, but do you know what I mean? There were a lot of films that came out that wouldn't have got the funding if it hadn't been for Bond, things mm. like the Ipcrest file, and all stuff like that. And there were tons and tons of things, even things like Danger Diabolique, which I think was. Uh, do you remember Danger Diabolique? No. It was sort of a cross between a Bond and a superhero thing. Okay. But I think it was it was an Italian thing. But again, it was in that sort of period where Bond was absolutely gold, mm. and I think they sold it off the back of the fact that, and Condor Man, of course. Condor Man, yeah, yeah. There's another sort of big Bond influence. There mm. were so many things like that around at the time. Where was I going with that? I don't know. I can't even I, remember. I, how I, that yeah, I think we were just talk about the Bond thing. But um, the other thing. Huh? Oh no, I was saying. Yeah. But, they're all very heavily male dominated in terms of agency and um, plot mechanics. Mm. You know, the girls re- rarely influenced the plot in those things. And I think when it comes down to things like cars doing cars, too, doing a bomb thing, mm. you've got, a, and it's not because they're doing it deliberately because of PC, it's just because they're making them in the modern day when it's standard to do it. Mm but you have a better gender balance in the people affecting the plot in these films and you get a better gender balance in the kids who are happy to watch them.
1: Mm, mm. Um, Oh, the other thing I've recently watched, I watched again yesterday, yeah, with my daughter, is I'm revisiting a load of Ghibli movies, Studio Ghibli. Um, You know, so I've changed my pronunciation. I was saying Ghibli for years, but I think Ghibli is how it's supposed to be. But anyway... (laughs) as in giblets it does sound better because otherwise it sounds like giblets doesn't it yeah well that's what I thought you were saying when you I started know. saying it <laughs> but there's a really great Film for over the summer have been putting loads of Studio Ghibli movies on you know across the summer and they repeat a load of them so it's worth going through your planner and setting the record to record them because sooner yeah. or later there's I think it's about 24 25 of them I don't know what they're doing the lot but um, they've put, started putting out a podcast. It's quite a short one. It's only about half an hour a time called Gibbler okay. And that's really great. And it's hosted by a couple of people involved with film by, in Film 4. And one of them is a real Gibbler fan. fan. And the other one has only seen a couple of the films. So he's discovering them as they go right. on. And they're doing a film at a time. It's a really, really good introduction to it. And they talk about a lot of the... Uh, if you listen... Beyond the yeah, credits, yeah. they they chuck some Easter eggs in about things, and there's a little connection between it and Pixar. And well, Ghibli is part financed by Disney. A lot yeah, of yeah, films, yeah, 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 yeah. They're sort of saying as you see, start to see the
0: influence, they influence each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a bit like the Beach Boys and the Beatles. It's well, the odd thing about things like Frozen is that, and some of the Pixar ones, things like Brave as well. Mm. A lot of these animations now are actually a lot more influenced by uh, sort of. What's the word I'm looking for? I was going to say ethical. Ethical's not ethnic. The ethnicities of yeah. yeah. the places where they're set. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still oh, a Cocoa. Disney movie. Oh, Coco, I mean, God. Yeah. 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 These, these things are still Disney movies or still Pixar movies or whatever. Yeah. But the ethnicity, ethicalness, what am I talking about? <laughs> Stretching for words. The ethnicity is a lot closer up to the surface nowadays, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they're all quite immersive. But um, the one I watched yesterday was Whisper of the Heart, which I didn't think my daughter would enjoy. And she really enjoyed it. She thought it was a bit sicky making when people, because it's... Do you watch them in
0: English dubs then?
1: They're English dubs, those ones. Yeah, Yeah. we tried watching, I'm trying to remember which one. There's one where it wasn't dubbed in English. I can't remember it now. But I would have been happy to watch it. But it was a a bit of a stretch for my daughter. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you're
0: watching kids' films, you can't watch it with subtitles.
1: No, no, but it was interesting because on the on the podcast they were talking about Whisper of the Heart and they were saying about one of, one of the things that uh running through it, the whole thing the whole film starts off with Olivia Newton John singing Country Road. Oh yeah. And um later on in the film uh the the female character comes up with her own lyrics and there's a boy who plays violin and they start playing it together and she sings it. And apparently if you listen to the original Japanese soundtrack she sings slightly out of time with it, so it sounds very natural. Oh, okay. And they were saying that, it, oh, you've got to listen to it in its original Japanese because it sounds more natural. Mm. And it's quite affecting because it feels
0: yeah real. Yeah.
1: But the dub, they've done it perfectly yeah. in time. Yeah. And it, it's little things like that. But yeah, and no, I thoroughly recommend that if, you, if you've not watched any of those films, they are something else. But it's also interesting from a story point of view in, in as much as obviously Pixar are, are the the studio who have nailed storytelling yeah yeah, yeah right. absolutely nailed it not formulaic but they've they know what they're doing they know what they're doing yeah whereas Ghibli work in a completely different way
0: where it's, it's almost like I don't know what the word is really but it's far more freeform well our project that we'll be announcing at some point on this podcast that we're not going to talk about yet <laughs> is a lot more freeform isn't it absolutely god yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are different ways of doing things. Yeah, and the, doing the story first thing mm. is fantastic, especially when you get it absolutely right. But also, there's no greater pleasure than in watching something that's completely freeform. Where you...
1: I think you can hit the beat, <coughs> you can hit the beats, but take a different road with it. Yeah, yeah, you can hit the beats, but up a different path. Mm. If you see what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting.
0: Really interesting. Yeah, I love uh, I love watching stuff where you can't quite predict what's gonna. No, you know,
1: you uh, you're never quite, not quite sure how they end as well. The Whisper of the Heart, it just kind of, it just ends. Mm-hmm. It ends on a point which makes logical sense, but from a traditional film storytelling sense, it's kind of like, oh, it's finished, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they are amazing films, and every time you watch them, you see something
0: different. Amazing. Right, let's whip through these five that I've. W- the one I've watched first was a New Zealand YA film called The Changeover. Mm. It's about a young girl whose dad committed suicide, whose mother works all the hours God gives. So this young girl, she's sixteen, looks after her little brother who's five. Mm. And um, oh, I talked about this. Mm. I'm sure it, now I'm starting to talk about it, I remember talking about it before. I'm sure I did. Yes. Oh, let's skip on past that one. Oh, okay. Then. Right. All right. <laughs> well, we've gone over the hour now anyway, so I don't, Right. The next one. Well, this is the DVD... Well, it's Blu-ray. has been released as Amazonia, the Catherine Miles story. Right. But I'm sure most people will remember it as what I remember it as, which is White Slave... Okay, but it was also known as Cannibal Holocaust Two. It's got nothing to do with Cannibal Holocaust, right? So that's the, and it's one of the Italian wave of cannibal films that came out in the mid eighties. And so these films would have protagonists getting lost in the jungle, mm. and they'd be, you know, beset by cannibals or whatever. Mm. So this was one of those wave of cannibal films. There's no cannibals in this. There's no cannibalism in in it. There's an awful lot of people getting their heads hacked off. There's headhunters. Right. So there's lots of very graphic, but very brief shots of people getting their heads hacked off. Nice. Which aren't always especially realistic. No. But actually, it's mostly done quite well, but it's pretty silly. You watch it now. It was made in the mid-1980s on a very low Italian budget. It's all pretty silly. But actually, the really weird thing about it is it feigns to be a true story. It's not a true story. The weird thing about it is it's kind of a love story. Mm. it's about this woman who's been essentially brought up in boarding schools in England in London but her parents own a big plantation on the banks of the River Amazon so it's her 18th birthday she's just graduated she goes to visit her parents they go out for a boat trip on the river and the parents get their heads hacked off and then she gets kidnapped by this tribe who take her into the jungle and she goes and lives in there. essentially the setup is this this huge hut Mm. it's a bit like what old castles would be like where there's a wall around the outside. Essentially it's a big hut with sort of small huts built into the walls on the inside that's irrelevant. She goes and lives with them there for about a year and the guy who um, has kidnapped her from the boat and taken her to the village kind of wins her in a fight on Mm. the first day so he beats the tribal elders man in a fight and he wins this girl but he doesn't force himself on her so she starts to live with the tribe can't escape there's nowhere to escape to she's miles and miles and miles deep in the amazon jungle so she starts to fall for this guy but she thinks he's killed her parents so she's conflicted and in the end well i don't want to spoil the ending for anybody who might watch it but essentially it's an excuse to have a film with lots of people's heads getting hacked off but it's this really weird really quite sweet love story absolutely appallingly acted really not terribly well written or anything <laughs> it's just a cheap italian knockoff but it's really weird to watch a cannibal film in inverted commas that's actually a love story yeah and also she spends almost the entire film naked but, but it's quite what's the tagline <laughs> She thought he wanted her head. He wanted her heart. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> the weird thing is, all that nudity's. Translate that into Italian. Quite discreetly shot some of it. Oh, it's in English. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, it's one of these. Um, it's like a spaghetti western. It's got a. Oh, actually, I think you can watch it in English or Italian on the Blu ray. I've always thought that was probably a good way of learning a language.
1: It's what well, if, if, what if I had my time again, I would learn more foreign languages, and I'd do it by watching
0: films. I used to watch a lot of French films, and you'd pick up conversational French, mm. so you'd learn to say things that you'd never get taught in school. Okay. Like, for instance, the French, they'd just say to each other, ça va? Right. And you're always taught to say, comment ça va? Right? How are you? Yeah. But they don't say, comment ça va? They no. just say, ça Because that's their version of, all right? Mm. Mm. So... You know, in the 80s, there were lots of French films where they were just walking up to each other and saying, so that, so and all this kind of the stuff. Chair is the is Don Le ghetto. <clears throat> yeah, okay, the dog is in the cake. Yeah. <laughs> right, here's two much more interesting films that people listening to this podcast will probably be a lot more interested in that are just coming out from network. I think they're, as we record, I think they're just about to come out in about a week's time. One is Assault. Which is, directed by Sidney Havers, came out in 1971 and started... No, looking at that cover, you'd never think that was 1971, would you? Look at it. The, these are my own homemade covers. Oh, are they? They're review discs. Okay. I like to make covers and stick them on the shelves. Well, I'm thinking that with my,
1: season 19, when it comes out on um, standard Blu-rays, I'll do my own covers for it.
0: In a fancy box? Yeah. All right.
1: I had seriously thought about doing that today. I started thinking, well, why don't I just do that? Why not?
0: Yeah, and then you'll have a limited edition of one. Oh, really? yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Assault. Yes. Um, Leslie Ann Down plays a schoolgirl. This is like her first film or something. Gets raped at a place called Devil's End. Right. For, this was two years before the demons, right? Mm. Or a oh, year okay. before the demons. Mm. Um. It's all girls school. So then, uh, Frank Finley is the detective who gets put on the case. And early, quite early in the film, there's another rape, and this second girl gets killed. Leslie and Down, her brains flipped. She's um, being looked after by a doctor. She can't speak or a function or anything. Mm. So Frank Finley gets brought in. There's a teacher played by Susie Kendall all sorts of people in this. But basically and I mean that sounds quite shocking but the rape sequence is pretty innocuous really. There's there's no nakedness and it's not a very violent film. There's a tiny bit of violence at the end. Mm. I mean it was an X certificate when it came out. I'm surprised it even got a 15 certificate on Blu-ray to be frank. It could mm. have been a 12. I suppose it's 15 because it's a rape, right? Yeah. But yeah. I mean it's so innocuous. Um So it basically gives you about three suspects and basically it's just a detective film about working out which one of these three suspects is guilty. And it's really good. I mean, it's cheap British film from 1971 made on the, I suppose made on a similar sort of budget to the kind of thing you'd get on a carry on film. Mm. But I mean, it takes itself very seriously, it's a proper detective yeah, yeah. thing. It's great, and it's out from network. So I mean, they've remastered it in 2K, and they've restored it as well. For example, White Slave, Amazonia, that's remastered on 2K, but unrestored, mm. which means that whenever you get darks, you get a lot of grain, a lot of artifacting. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Horrible. Assault,
0: <laughs> the, these two network ones, Assault and the other ones, Deathline. they're remastered and restored, so there's no grain in the darks. They look absolutely gorgeous. Mm. They look probably better than... Isn't that kind of a standard from Network? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I don't get a lot of Network stuff, so... Mm. But, I mean, they look probably better than they did in the pictures. Mm. And these were both staples on telly in the 80s. Deathline's the other one. Oh, Assault, I should mention, has got Tony Beckley, Harrison Chase from The Seeds of Doom... Oh, okay. ...and Anthony Ainley. Right. They're two of the suspects... And the other one's James Robertson, I think, is the name. I should check, actually, shouldn't I? Is it there? James Lawrenson, sorry, is the other one. He plays the doctor. It's a great film. And although you can work out where it's going to go, it's still great fun watching it get there. Mm. Deathline um, is about a person who goes missing on the underground who, it transpires, is... um, A cabinet minister. So the detective who initially does the missing persons thing suddenly gets warned off by, uh, you know, MI5. You shouldn't be doing this, but somebody else goes missing. So then he's able to get back on the case. It's about cannibals on the underground. (laughs) So there's a scene at the start of the film where they're talking about, oh, yes, because he says, oh, somebody's gone missing on the underground. So he gets an expert on the underground in played by Clive Swift. Oh yeah. And Clive Swift talks about I don't know if it's real or whether they've made it up for the film. I imagine it's made up for the film but I should imagine there are also real places. He says there was a... back in the 1890s or whatever they were building a station and there was a rock fall and the whole place got buried and the company didn't have enough money to Go in and sort it out. So the company went bust. So it just got completely abandoned. And there are legends that the people who were there survived by eating Hang on. each London other. London Underground. Yeah. Bloody hell. Okay. So you know automatically as soon as he says that, where this film is going. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's about cannibals on the underground and this cabinet minister who's gone missing. But the uh, significant thing is the detective is played by Donald Pleasance who is having an absolute field day playing this detective. He's
1: so watchable,
0: isn't he? Yeah. I've never
1: known a bad film with him, innit? There probably are
0: quite a few, but... But they've obviously written this to be a slightly eccentric detective. Yeah. And he's just taken, oh, slightly eccentric, you say, and absolutely gone to town on it. But it's just wonderful to watch. Mm.
1: Mm.
0: And, funnily enough, Deathline, the second one, is a film I must have seen on telly in the 80s and never knew what it was and mm. had completely forgotten about. And when these films came up for review, I said, Oh, I'll have that, not thinking then twice about it and thinking it was something I hadn't seen. And I put it on, and about half an hour in, I'm suddenly, This is that film I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Both of those two. It's funny how we get that. I
1: was like that with um, Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout. Oh, really? I had no idea that I'd, you know it came on TV and they said, "Oh, this is an amazing film," you know, and uh, I'd seen it as a B movie, and it was shown with *Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger*. really? Yeah. What And I watched that as a child. Dub- yeah. That was it's, it's quite horrible. That film, *Walkabout*. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, 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 I, I watched it on TV thinking I was, and, and I'd already
0: seen it. Right. Finally, this one's quite interesting, *Iris*. Was the name of a Korean TV series in I think it was two yeah two thousand and nine. Mm. It was twenty episodes. It was basically Korea's answer to Spooks. Mm-hmm. Although actually, if you remember Alias, it's a lot closer to Alias. Yeah, yeah. Alias had a serial format, where, whereas uh, Spooks is series. Mm. And Alias also had that. There's an organisation that. Do you remember?
1: I I don't know.
0: I know. Right, Alias, JJ Abrams' first thing, wasn't it? Alias yeah. was all about this secret organisation that was playing all the other organisations that you knew about, mm. and Iris is the same. It's about North and South Korea, but it's about a third organisation that's playing North and South Korea off against each other. And essentially, the Lee Byung-hun, who plays the main character, mm. he gets sent on basically a tit-for-tat assassination mission at the start of the the story, the 20-episode TV series. Mm. Only its he doesn't know it. It's a suicide mission. He's not supposed to come back. And when he survives, all hell breaks loose, and the rest of the series is about the aftermath of the fact that this guy survived, which causes this secret organisation to not be a secret anymore, Mm. because various things get uncovered and discovered. And it's a detective thing. You know the score. So this was 20... I don't know, I suppose somewhere between 40 and 60 minute episodes of a TV series. Mm. While they were doing that, so there's one director on the TV series. While they were doing that, an entirely separate director was following them every step of the way and refilming for the cinema the bits they'd need to boil 20 hours down into 120 minutes so there could be a movie of it as well. Yeah. So, Iris the movie, which is the one that's just coming out from 88... or just come out, actually, from 88 films, is the two-hour version of this 15, 20-hour, whatever it was, TV series. uh, Yeah, It is... Right, it all makes perfect sense. There are a few bits where things are sped up slightly, which you wouldn't notice, apart from the fact that... I don't know if it's the same on DVD, but on Blu-ray. As soon as you speed something up, you lose the, you know about the de-interlacing that they do with video yes. to make it yeah. look like film. As soon as you speed something up, you lose the de-interlacing yeah. because it, well, I mean, there are, this is not technically what happens. But essentially what you're kind of doing is, because you're playing it twice as fast, it is making up for the deinterlacing. Yeah. So every time something's sped up, even though essentially it looks normal, it suddenly looks like video. So sadly, a lot of the action sequences have got bits that look like video in them. My brother-in-law's got one of these
1: televisions that has the different frame rate, where it guesses the the frame in between. Yeah. So when, particularly when you watch CGI or CG movies, they just look horrible. Yeah, I can imagine. Even Pixar looks horrible.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know
1: why they ever did that. You could switch it off, and I used to be tempted Mm. when I go over their house to switch it off.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it all makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, one of the threads in it is one of the women who works at the organisation is secretly his girlfriend. So when he goes so when he comes back from this mission and he's ostracised and he essentially sort of goes to work for the secret organisation mm. although against his better wishes. So then he becomes her enemy and it's and so the film is as much about will he and she make it back together by the end as it is about all the espionage stuff. But actually, even though it's 15 hours into 120 minutes, it all makes perfect sense. It is just incredibly fast. And I suppose for the modern generation, incredibly fast is probably a bonus. But even for somebody of my generation, I still found it very entertaining. And Mm. I love Spooks, and I loved Alias. And so, actually, I kind of wished I'd got the 15-hour version so that I could have watched it in a more reasonable pace. Mm. I really enjoyed it. Mm. I give it a seven, because one of the things that you lose whittling the 15 hours down into the two hours is this guy's relationship with this girl. Mm. Even though they try to emphasise it, because they've cut so much stuff out, you can tell you've lost a lot of that relationship. Mm. But it's still very entertaining. It's an interesting idea as well, isn't it? It's amazing that they, they could do that. Well, then, also they had the budget. Though some of it's set in Japan, and probably about the first four episodes are set in Hungary, although that's about fifteen minutes of screen time in the film version. But yeah, it's filmed in Japan and Hungary and Korea. Yeah, it's and it doesn't really sort of beat around the bush. But what it does is because it introduces this third organization, instead of because the. What you're saying is, it's amazing they could do that because probably North Korea would see that as um, an affront. Mm. But actually, because they introduced this third organization, it actually makes North Korea and South Korea look like um, allies instead of enemies against this third organization. So it's actually quite, I can't think of the word I want, Mm. but it's quite. Well, quite forward-thinking. Forward-thinking. In that yeah. sense, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That's not really the word I wanted, but it'll do. Yeah. Right, I've blathered, and you've blathered a bit. And I we've have. gone on for a lot longer than I expected. Yep. And we started late. <clears throat> so next week, we're going to come back, and probably the two of us again, and we'll go through some of the smaller story arc things in Doctor Who. Things like we'll perhaps talk about Adam. We'll mm. talk about the monks. We'll talk about things like that. Might do a fair chunk on River Song and unpick some of her stuff that sort of thing mm. there are loads of them I'll get a list together before we come back next week and I'll actually now I've got a new printer I'll just print oh. out a list oh. uh, there won't be any notes on it no because I never do notes but there'll be an actual list maybe <laughs> oh I oh, had
1: a Elton Towning Jones's because uh, he won't say this himself will he, is he, does, he does he tend to publicise himself he will He'll do when he's on. Oh, he's he... coming back in a few weeks. I oh, was, was going to say, but, but there's a load of extra dates have been announced for Time Machine. Okay. People um, should go and look Time Machine oh, up. that was great. You know, I went to see it in... Um, I can't remember if it was somewhere in Somerset. But yeah, I travelled to see it. Yeah. And just announced some extra dates and it's just down the way from us and oh, in Timmouth. Oh,
0: really?
1: In, in October, yeah.
0: Oh, so. he's been there before with something.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of his... Um, uh, Austin's Women and... Uh, uh, the Christmas Gothic I saw down there as well. Ah. Yeah, but there's a load of new dates across the country have been announced. So coming further down towards the southwest, if anyone's down this way, no, and it's well, honestly, it's a one man show, but it really, really great time, the time machine, and it's um, uh, amazing lighting. Uh, obviously, amazing acting, and uh, the way he's written it, it's very. I use that word prescient very very uh, appropriate and right for
0: now it's really great and it's Dyad yes D-Y-A-D Yeah, is the production company yeah not Dryad Dyad yeah people should look that up on social media to Mm. find the dates Mm. Um, I had the first half of season 20 from um, Logan's Look and I forgot to bring it with me so that'll have to wait till next week (gasps) that was so good as well First half of season 20. Yeah. So there's a cliffhanger to leave you on. Until then, I was JR. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs>